following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This is the season of Advent. We are now in the second week of Advent. Advent is every year a season of waiting and anticipation. And as I said last time, sometimes that waiting is um, kind of a joyous, excited waiting, like a like a kid waiting for Christmas morning. My family just celebrated Christmas with my parents and my side of the family this past weekend, and so we had four boys running around the house with that kind of joyous, excited waiting. (laughs) And that can be a beautiful thing. But that's not the only kind of waiting that we engage in during the season of Advent, and this year in particular, we are trying to um, practice a more painful, aware waiting, a longing for change that comes through Christ's incarnation, through his ministry, through his death, through his resurrection. And uh, this theme, Bind Up the Brokenhearted, comes from one of the texts that we will read next week in the third week of Advent. The the text from the prophet Isaiah um, uses this phrase, Bind Up the Brokenhearted, tells us that God wants to bring good news to the the oppressed. And uh, I will say again, as people who are steeped in Christ's redemption, we believe that we are called to be agents of good news. We are called to be agents of healing and hope in our city where we still see so much despair. We've just prayed for very specific aspects of that. And so that tension between despair and hope in our city is the, the focus of Advent 2014 here at Artisan Church. So there's that tension. There's the other tension, which we talked about last week, which you'll see lived out here again today, uh, the tension between current events and Scripture. During this season, we are making efforts to become more aware of what the realities are in our city. But not just to leave that there and say, man, it's really hard, but to look and see what what do the scriptures have for us? What kind of hope might we find in the Bible? And so this can make for some strange kind of uh, companion topics. Last week, we had the fairly strange companion topics of uh, structural institutional racism and spiritual giftedness in the church. And if that seems completely weird to you, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast from last week and um, maybe it will seem slightly less completely weird to you after listening. This week, we have a similar kind of uh, odd tension. The tension this week is between the reality of infant mortality and the, the concept of repentance. This may even be less of a direct tie than we had last week, but we'll see where it takes us. Um, and again today... This wasn't exactly the plan going into Advent, uh, but we're going to have another team-taught message today. And um, Melody Boyd, Dr. Melody Boyd, um, a professor of sociology at SUNY Brockport, who is a member of our congregation, um, has such good insight and knowledge of the realities of what's happening on the current events side of things in our city that she um, gave a great presentation last week about structural racism. This morning, uh, I've asked her to come and talk about infant mortality in our city and in our county and the world, uh, but particularly the locally, uh, locally um, 
is our focus today. Uh, and so after Melody is done sharing that with you, I will once again come up and, and um, not try to tie up with a pretty bow or sew up a, with a perfect uh, suture the pain of our world, but offer some insight from Scripture that might have something to say to us in the wake of that story. Um, so once again, um, thank you, Dr. Melody Boyd. Would you come up and share with us this morning? So good morning. So as Scott said, in this season of Advent, we are really embracing the idea that as a community, we can together recognize how longing and yearning are part of Advent, which is something that in traditional Western Christianity, we sort of skipped over and got into the joy and celebration. And so we're really kind of dwelling in that. Um, And so first off, I want to say that what we discussed last week is still very present, even in recent events this week around the country. So I don't want to just sort of move past that and say, well, we talked about that and we moved on. I'm not going to reiterate it today, but I just want to mention that that um, is and should still be pressing on our souls. Um, And today we're going to talk about another aspect of systemic inequality, particularly that's relevant to our city. And before I talk through that, I think it's really important to think about how when we fully understand the depth of despair, we can be even more hopeful. So this tension of despair and hope, sometimes we sort of gloss over despair in order to get to hope. But I actually think that if we recognize the depth of despair, the depth of the challenges, of the wounds, of the pain in our city and in our country and in our world, we can be even more joyful about the thought of what hope we have in Christ as a Redeemer. So I want to just say that before uh, we talk about the topic today of infant mortality. So to kind of frame the context of infant mortality in Rochester, first of all, the United States is an extremely unequal society compared to other industrialized nations. We have an extreme gap between the rich and the poor, and it is growing. It's not getting smaller, it's growing. And so that's systemic inequality. And when we think about systemic inequality, it's really important for us to recognize the ways that This is not something that is just based on individual choices, that some people um, have more money and some people have less because of their individual choices or their work ethic or how um, intelligent they are. This is a systemic issue that is shaped by all sorts of factors. And I'm not going to go into all of those um, today, but race and class shape people's access to resources in Rochester, in the United States, in the world. And sometimes it's hard for us to think about those because they're complicated and they're big. Um, But as I mentioned at the beginning, I think the more that we recognize the complexity, the more we can think about how do we um, hope for and bring about change in the world. So two big concepts that I'm just going to a little bit gloss over that are really important factors for understanding infant mortality are racial residential segregation and concentrated poverty. And sociologists use the term neighborhood effects to describe the idea that where you live matters. And when we're thinking about poverty, it's really important to understand the history of the ways in which racist policies of the United States 
and individual people's actions have shaped why we have such deep racial residential segregation in this country, and certainly in Rochester. Now, poverty is not just in cities. It's in rural areas. It's in suburban areas as well. But there's an aspect of urban poverty where there's dense populations and a large concentration of people who are impoverished that creates this intensity of the ways in which a lack of resources negatively impact people's lives. So it's not just about your own family's lack of resources. It's also about the community's lack of resources. And in this country, we have a long history of disinvesting in racially segregated, impoverished neighborhoods, particularly those in cities. And that disinvestment plays out in all sorts of ways. One of those ways is infant mortality, which isn't something that we talk a lot about in this country, um, but is a really clear example of how where you live matters, what resources you have available to you matter. So infant mortality is defined as the death of a live-born infant before their first birthday. And the United States actually has quite a high infant mortality rate compared to other industrialized countries. Nationally, so across the entire United States, black babies are twice as likely to die before their first birthday compared to white birthdays, um, compared to white babies. And Rochester actually has even higher rates. So Rochester's infant mortality rate is higher than the national average, and it's higher than the New York State average. Rochester has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the entire country. And there's absolutely a racial component to this. Black and Latino babies, depending on the year, are up to four times as likely to die before their first birthday than white babies, up to four times as likely. And this is intimately connected to residential segregation because over half of those deaths happen in one part of our city, which is called the Crescent. And those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it's a term to describe a nine-zip code area of neighborhoods that basically ring downtown. So if you're looking at downtown Rochester, it's the, they kind of form a crescent shape around them, just nine zip codes that have very high poverty rates, very high crime rates. And these nine zip codes account for more than half of the infant deaths in all of Monroe County in any given year. So what's the connection between where you live and infant mortality? So first of all, there's deep roots to infant mortality. It's a complex issue that I won't unpack today, but I do want to talk through some of the factors that research clearly shows is connected to factors in infant mortality, particularly impact of living in concentrated poverty areas. These are all examples of systemic inequality, not examples of individual choices, but of ways in which our system is set up that certain areas and people have resources and certain areas and people don't. And particularly in this city, which is very um, rich in healthcare, the fact that we have such a high infant mortality rate is especially striking. So some of the, the aspects that research finds to be connected to um, infant mortality. First challenge is accessing healthcare. One aspect of this is transportation issues. Rochester does not have a great public transportation system, as many of you know. And so even just the transportation challenges of getting to um, health care is an issue. The cost of health care 
the lack of prenatal care um, in many of our communities, as well as issues that um, impoverished folks sometimes have challenges communicating with medical professionals. Um, so there's sort of a lack of um, communication in, in that relationship. Connected to this is the overall health of mothers that is not just about the birth of the infant, but the cumulative health of the mothers prior to even conception. So one aspect of this is food insecurity, which is a term to describe lack of access to not only food in general, but also healthy food. Um, many people in our city, in our own neighborhoods, in um, surrounding areas of Rochester, forego food so that their children can eat. And research shows that it's typically the mothers who are the ones to forego food when there's a lack of food for their family. That's called food insecurity. And there's high rates of food insecurity throughout the U.S., and that's increased in recent years um, after the, depression, after the uh, recession. Another aspect of this is something researchers call toxic stress. Now, we all probably feel like sometimes we have toxic stress in our lives, but this is a very specific term to describe the ways that ongoing stress creates a toxic impact on your body in ways that shape, particularly mothers, um, ability to have healthy children. Um, and researchers find this is connected to things like exposure to crime. So the constant stress of witnessing violence and crime in one's neighborhood can create this kind of toxic stress. And researchers find clear links between that and um, the health of babies. The stress of not having enough financial resources, which is connected to a much bigger issue that in this country, we simply don't have enough jobs and we don't have enough living wage jobs. So even folks who are working, for many families, that's still not enough to support their family. So that stress of not having enough um, financial resources creates a constant source of stress for, um, for individuals and for families. And so much of this is intertwined with poverty. So those were just a few pieces of this. But it's really important to see this link between how does something that may seem so individual, infant mortality, how is that connected to structural systemic issues of inequality? In the United States, more than 16 million children live below the poverty level, which is 22% of all children in the U.S. live below the poverty level. And the poverty level is actually kind of misleading um, because if you're above the poverty level, it doesn't actually mean that you have enough resources for your family. And researchers find that you actually need about double the, the amount of money that's considered to be poverty level to actually have enough resources to not need any form of assistance to provide for your family. And so if we use that measure, 45% of children in the United States live in low-income families. And in Rochester specifically, as of 2014, Rochester is the fifth poorest city in the entire country. And it's the third, if we look at the highest concentration of poverty city. Third. And so this plays out in these statistics that I read about um, infant mortality. And again, this is an example of the ways that when we're thinking about social issues, it's crucial that we recognize how they're part of systemic inequality, that there's context to these issues. This isn't just about choices that individuals make. And even when we say, well, you know, if we're looking at choices, it's really crucial that we recognize the ways in which choices are often constrained. And when you have limited resources, your choices are constrained. And that can sometimes be challenging for folks who have plenty of resources. 
And we say things like, well, I wouldn't make that decision. But when one's choices are constrained, those choices aren't free and clear choices in ways that they might be for someone with more resources. So this concentrated poverty and the way it plays out with um, racial differences because of racial residential segregation, infant mortality is just one example of the kinds of social problems that are deeply connected to this kind of systemic inequality. And as we think about how this is connected to Advent, some of you may be familiar um, with the term liberation theology, which is a perspective that essentially argues that we are all complicit when a death occurs that could have been prevented. And infant mortality is not always completely preventable, but so much with the infant mortality, particularly that we see um, in Rochester with these vastly different uh, racial rates, so much of that could be prevented with access to medicine and transportation and quality health care. And so I'm encouraging us to think about this not as someone else's problem, not as a different community's problem, but as our problem for each of us individually, for all of our communities, whatever neighborhood we live in, in the suburbs, in the city, in the more rural outlying areas. This isn't a problem of a particular neighborhood, of a particular person, or a particular group of people. It's a systemic problem, and we're all part of the system. And as I said last week, some of us benefit from that system, and some of us don't, and we're all connected to it. Even if we don't choose to be, even if we don't think about it, we are. So this is part of the despair that Scott talked about. We are all complicit in this. It affects all of us. The death of babies that we may not know should break our hearts. We are all part of it. It should affect all of us. We belong to each other. We are interdependent. And that's the idea of what social justice is, which we've been using a sort of social justice lens as we've been talking about Advent. That's what social justice is. It's not, well, let me try to help someone else's issues. Let me try to fix someone's problems. It's recognizing how we're interdependent. We're all part of this system. And when one person's hurting, we should be hurting too. And as I started off by saying, when we really understand the depth of this despair, we can be even more hopeful for the redemption that the newborn baby brings. And I think this issue of infant mortality is especially poignant at this time of year as we see images of Jesus in a manger as a baby, images of Jesus in Mary's arms, images and songs of babies, of a newborn baby, So my hope is that we can sort of feel this tension as we celebrate Christ coming as a baby, as an innocent child, to bring hope and redemption for the world. So the hope of Advent is that we can connect with Jesus coming to the world as a baby to redeem the world and hold this tension of the reality of babies dying in our city as we long for justice and redemption. So to close, I want to read um, a prayer. This is written by the group Education for Justice, which is a social justice faith-based organization. This is a prayer for a world renewed. O God, our creator and sustainer, we pray to you. We want to celebrate life, 
we cry out against all that kills life. Hunger, poverty, unemployment, sickness, debt, repression, individualism, abuse of the earth, injustice, and all other forms of slavery. We want to announce fullness of life, work, education, health, housing, safe environment, bread for all. We want communion, solidarity, a world renewed. We hope against hope with the God of history. We want to make things new again. Thank you, Melody. Well, as I said, uh, after that particular treatment of current events in our city, we turn to Scripture, and the Advent texts today contained, I didn't put it there, they contained some common language about repentance. And so it is my task as a preacher of God's words in Scripture to speak of that. And uh, again, this is not meant to be a linear connection. Um, I think there are connections, though. And it's not meant to be um, a a very quick, easy solution, just put a scripture band-aid on it, and we'll all be happy. That disclaimer having been given. (laughs) Repentance is a very churchy word, is it not? Repentance is very popular with the megaphone crowd, right? It's almost always on the signs that you see as they march outside of Frontier Field or wherever they're marching that particular day. Uh, Often in the context of the phrase repent or burn, maybe you've seen something like that on a sign in Rochester. And actually, the, the, the word repent as a verb is used that way sometimes in Scripture, not those exact words, and I don't think with that kind of attitude, but it is present in Scripture. Repent, or you're in trouble. An urgent call. But if that's the only way you think about repentance, you can miss, uh, I was going to say a little bit, but I would say now a lot of the nuance that's present in the word and in the concept. And it makes it seem, here's the problem, it makes it seem like there's one little simple act some force of will that results in total repentance. So to simply stop cheating on your taxes or your spouse or at Cedros of Catan and you'll be fine, right? <laughs> repent. But the thing is, the word repent literally means a new way of thinking. The Greek word is metanoia. It's a cool word to say. A new way of thinking. It's a shift of the mind. And frankly, that's a lot harder to pull off than a single behavioral change, isn't it? We have to figure out a way to do it because it is central to Advent, particularly today's texts. And so... Let's go to Scripture. Um, It begins with John the Baptist. Um, 
John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy that we, we read at our call to worship from the prophet Isaiah. And if you would turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 1, you can follow along um, with this. Or you can just listen. That's okay, too. Remember the prophet Isaiah had this language about um, a voice crying out in the wilderness, clear a path for the way of the Lord. Here's what Mark 1 says. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer, some of your translations might say John the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right. So John the baptizer, John the Baptist, is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. And how does he do that? He calls people to repentance. Now remember, he's not calling the pagan people to repentance. He's not calling them out of the... uh, the temple of the Roman gods. He's not marching around the gladiator arenas with a sign. He's calling good, devout, religious Jews to repentance, to be baptized and confess their sins. And that's how this whole Advent thing is framed. Jesus is coming, so repent. Try putting that in a festive song. It wouldn't work very well. Let's look now at one of the other readings for today, for the second week of Advent. I want to read the epistle reading. This is the, the reading from the letters of the New Testament, and this particular one is Second Peter chapter 3. Again, uh, the page number is on the screen. If you're using the Red Bibles, you can follow along. Um, this is a fascinating passage, and I could easily give a whole sermon about it. I'm going to fly through it and try to restrain myself from going down too many rabbit trails. Let's read it. Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, here's the question for us. What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I'm going to leave this text on the screen because I think we're going to hover around it for a minute. So, it's a shame that this passage is so often used, this day is like a thousand years, thousand years is like a day, is so often used to write some theological algebra 2 equation about the second coming. Because all that pointless religious math 
obfuscates the beautiful statement that this passage actually makes, which is the statement that if you are longing and aching for change in the world and you're wondering, you want Jesus to come and make things better and you don't know why he's not come, it's not because he is slow in keeping his promise. It's because he is patient. And if he were to come now, something would happen which he does not want to happen which is that more would perish, right? (laughs) He wants to see everyone come to repentance. My Reformed friends have trouble with this verse. We don't need to do the theological rap battle just now. But he wants that not any would perish. What a beautiful sentiment that is. And so Peter asks this question almost rhetorically. What sort of persons ought you to be then in leading lives, and he answers it, in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God? It's sort of consistent with what he's saying. The holier and more godly we all become, the quicker Jesus will come back so that none will perish. So while we're waiting, we are being given a chance to repent, to have a new frame of mind, to experience a new way of thinking. So, in light of the particular Rochesterian despair that Melody shared with us, how should we repent? Because it's not as if there's any one concrete form of repentance that we could engage in, those of us in this room, to lower uh, automatically in a linear one-to-one relationship the infant mortality rate in our city. That would be absurd to propose that, to suggest that there's something like that. I do think there are some things of which we can repent that might have some bearing on this. The first one we have just done for you. We need to repent of our ignorance. Guess what? You're no longer ignorant. Now, I know that some in the room weren't ignorant when you came into this place, and you kind of wish that you could be, because you have had some incredibly painful experience in your life, in your own family or in somebody close to you. And please understand, I would never increase your pain by suggesting that you don't know what it, what it feels like. But for the rest of us, myself included, Think about the fact that we have had a million babies here. That's um, not exactly accurate, but we've had a million babies born here at Artisan in the last several years, including my little Teddy. And you and I, almost all of us, have reasonably expected every one of them to see their first birthdays. It has not crossed our mind during this joyful growth of these little ones to think that in many parts of our city, seeing, seeing them take their first steps and babble out their first words would not have been a reasonable expectation. I'm not talking about the precious children of Uganda where we have some personal ties as a community 
and where infant mortality would be expected to be high because of lack of access to clean drinking water. I'm talking about people who live five minutes away from us. And we, most of us, have not thought about them. As we've seen, I couldn't even say the names out loud because I would become so emotional. As we have seen these beautiful little babies start to, to get big and become one years old. So we need to repent of our ignorance. We've done that. The second thing is we should repent of our complacency. And this is so hard because the reality is you, like me, might have tears welling in your eyes right now. We have heard this real message of despair from people who live single-digit miles from us. And by the time we're home, putting our lunch on the table, or eating at Chipotle, which is where I go for lunch on Sundays sometimes, we will have chosen to act as if we never heard it. That's complacency. And that's really hard to know what to do, isn't it? It is actually a lot easier. It's a defense mechanism on our part to choose to forget that we ever heard these statistics because we don't know what to do. There isn't one thing that we can change in our lives or one switch that we can flip in our city's government that would fix this problem quickly. So it's easier, and we will, many of us, make the choice to forget that we ever heard it, and we need to repent of our complacency. And the third is the most challenging of all. It's, it's so challenging and so fraught a word that it's not even fair for me to use it, but I think I would be um, derelict in my duties if I didn't say that we also need to repent of our own privilege. This is... Um, if this is a troubling word for you, if you don't like the P word, if you think that that politicizes things, think of it this way. We need to repent of our decision not to be like Jesus, who, remember from Philippians 2, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and exploited, but instead emptied himself, taking on human form, the form of a slave and submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. We just, I just preached that message to you almost exactly two months ago. So if you don't like me saying we should repent of our privilege, think of it as repenting of our decision not to be like Jesus, not to empty ourselves of the, of the benefits that we have in an effort to save people who don't have those benefits. Remembering that part of the message from last week, which Melody already reiterated once this morning, is that we are all part of the same body. Remember the hippy-dippy Paul saying this. If one member, if one part suffers, we all suffer. And I don't think that we get to say, I don't think that we get to say that we are his people if we decide to continue in ignorance, complacency, and unchecked privilege. 
So I want to pray this prayer one more time for us that we prayed at our confession this morning. And then our communion table will be open. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are your people, mostly privileged, competent, entitled. Your people who make futures for ourselves, seize opportunities, get the job done, and move on. In our self-confidence, we expect little beyond our productivity. We wait little for that which lies beyond us, and then settle with ourselves at the center. And you, you in the midst of our privilege, our competence, our entitlement, you utter large, deep oaths beyond our imagined futures. You say, fear not, I am with you. You say, nothing shall separate us. You say, something of new heaven and new earth. You say, you are mine, I have called you by name. You say, my faithfulness will show concretely and will abide. And we find our privilege eroded by your purpose, our competence shaken by your future, our entitlement unsettled by your other children. Give us grace to hear your promises. Give us freedom to trust your promises. Give us patience to wait and humility to yield our dreamed future to your large purpose. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is your deep yes over our lives. Amen. Jesus, who is our God's deep yes over our lives, invites you now to his table to receive his body and his blood, broken and shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, for true salvation. Our table at Artisan is open. If you are seeking to follow Jesus in this place on this day, you are now invited to come to the table. We practice intinction. You tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever would be more appropriate for you and for your family if you should choose to have them engage in this as well. Uh, if you are not following Jesus, if you are, uh, consider yourself more of an observer at this time, we want you to feel welcome and comfortable as well. You can sit and think and meditate or pray. Uh, and we will have a member of the prayer team here. If you'd like personalized prayer, you can come and receive personalized prayer as well. Let's continue to worship God in song as we receive from his table. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. <laughs>